Hey yo, and here we go. Another episode of We Talk Music is on the air and in your ear. Once again, I am Martin, and I have with me the king of the casters. He is Mr. Brett Podcast. And Brett, I think we're going to have a very exciting and interesting interview today. Why don't you introduce the guest? Well, you know, it's interesting because we've had a lot of stars on the show, but today we have a star maker on the show. We have star maker and impresario, Harvey Lisberg. Harvey, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. And how are you, Brett? Well, I'm wonderful. You know, it's it's going to be awesome to talk to you. Uh, I know I've been reading uh, I'm Into Something Good, which is your new book, and, and it's a wonderful read so far. Um, you know, what made you do it now? Um, basically, all my life I've known these stories, having lived through them. Well, initially I thought, there's no way anybody's going to believe any of this, so <laughs> I'm not bothering thinking about getting it printed because I didn't think anybody would believe it. Um, however, when COVID arrived, I decided, and lots of people have kept nagging me, why don't you write it down? You've got to write it down, you know, otherwise it'll die with you. So when COVID arrived, I phoned up Charlie Thomas, who'd done a 10cc documentary on um, 10cc called I'm Not In Love for the BBC, which was aired five times. It was that good. And wow. he, prior to that, had been a sportscaster on Sky TV for 15 years. Um, I decided that it might be a very good idea to ask him whether he could help me construct this book. Uh, and he came to Rancho Mirage, where I live, and uh, he spent five days with me where I just talked and talked into um, a tape recorder, went away and wrote the book. And I was delighted with the results because we share the same humor, the same sports interest, and also the same music interest. And he has a knowledge at the back of the interest. And also, he sees he was at Nebworth, the concert that I described at the beginning of the book, which was the last concert of the four members of 10CC. He was actually in the front, and I was in the back. So you got both sides of the both sides of the coin, which was really interesting. Yeah, I mean that's that Nebworth story is is really crazy. <laughs> I mean, I can't. What what's the stress like in those kind of moments? Well, it was very strange because I knew there was a problem. The problem was obviously with the sound. The people that are the headliners always control the sound, so I can't accuse I can't accuse them directly of doing anything. But Eric Stewart was a perfectionist on sound. And the group never, ever did an opening act for anybody before. It was just the, the money was £27,000 for the one-hour performance, or one and a half hours, actually, to be accurate. And that was as much as we would earn for a whole tour. And coupled with that, the expenses are minimal because it's just for one day, and maybe a bit of rehearsing. So we did it really for the money. And... We knew we weren't really right with the Rolling Stones. I mean, you can't really match Rolling Stones and 10CC, but musically, 10CC could stand with anybody. So from that point of view, it didn't matter. Um, but 99% of the audience were with the Rolling Stones. Maybe 1% or half a percent went to see uh, 10CC. So when there was a trouble with the sound and the group said, we're not going on stage because we can't hear our voices because somebody's messed around with the equipment and we're not going on, da 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 da. So I went to see Fred Bannister, who was put the show on. He was, as this was a third, I think, Nebworth Festival. 
It was pretty big. It was a big thing in England. It was the only big thing at the time. It was the hugest, biggest festival there was. And I said, look, we've got a real problem here. He says, yeah, well, it's all right. We'll just delay it a while. We'll say, okay, we'll get it sorted. Well, they didn't get it sorted in one and a half hours. And by now, I'm getting a bit irritable. Um, you know, it was a very, it was a very high power occasion because you passed Jack Nicholson, Paul McCartney, Linda. Everybody was there that was anybody. And then nothing's happening on stage. And people are drinking and getting drugged out of their minds. So there's nothing happening. And finally, we, I said, look, I've got a great idea. We won't go on. Just let the Stones go on. That's their audience. They're waiting to see them. And for some reason, Fred said, no. He says, you've got to go on. Anyhow, they got it fixed eventually, and the group went on at 10 o'clock. A slight advantage to us, because if we'd have gone on at 5 o'clock, it was bright daylight on a midsummer's day. Their lighting show, which was very intricate, would have been a total waste of time. At least their lights were very effective. Meanwhile, Mick Jack, we curtailed our act by uh, an hour, I think. They did an hour. They opened with, um, with One Night in Paris, which <laughs> if it would have been up to me, I would not have opened with a 12-minute <laughs> operatus set in front of a Rolling Stones crowd, drunk and, and dying to see Mick Jagger. It was not the right song. I think they should have opened with, well, they, they, they closed with rubber bullets, but I think they should have probably opened with it. Anyhow. They finally won the audience round, and then Mick went on, probably 11 o'clock, I don't know, 12 o'clock. We went back. I missed my plane back to France, and and that was the end of the story. And I've worked it out now. And the reason why there, was, the reason why there might have been a delay was Keith Richards had had an excess of whatever he takes, drink or drink, I don't know what it was, and he was sleeping it off in Nebworth House. So I've really put two and two together recently and probably think, well, Fred Bannister maybe knew that the Stones actually didn't want to go on stage at that, at that point. It's the only logical explanation I could think for forcing 10cc to go on. I mean, it didn't make any sense to me at all. But if Keith wasn't ready to go on stage, well, that's possibly a good way of, of delaying the proceedings. And on top of everything else, Keith smashed his Bentley up on the way home. So he had a great day. Wow. <laughs> That's a, that is amazing. Like, when it comes down to all of these kind of things, like, how how well is, how good is your memory for everything? Like, did you write things down as you were going? Or is it just like, you've just kept it all? No, the, the interesting thing is, not so much that. You have a selective memory of the crazy things that happen, like the Keith Moon incident, which maybe we'll discuss. But um, but then, because I'm doing the book, I'm phoning various people up that were there and getting their side of the story, and they're reflecting things, and the, it's it suddenly takes to life because you're getting other people talking about the same time, and it, it sparks your memory off. So I, I remember most of it. Yeah. And there are certain things I don't remember at all. I mean, not necessarily to do with the group, but I mean, two years earlier, in 61 or 1659, I went on holiday with people who told me about it, and I have no recollection of even going away with them. It's the most <laughs> peculiar and very embarrassing. But uh, I really don't remember going on holiday. I talked about two-week holidays with people not remembering you going with them. But as far as the <laughs> As far as the music was concerned and everything, I pretty remember a lot of that. Maybe it's because I just loved it so much and it was such a, a ride. 
Well, and obviously. I stayed sober as well. I mean, I wasn't on drugs or anything. I think it's almost regrettable that you miss out on all that era. You know, you're not you're on the other side again. You're like the straight manager as opposed to somebody that's participating and know what the hell's going on musically and everything. But you know, I just didn't. I was never involved in it. But I think at least at the end, at the end of everything, you you have the full recollection because you weren't. Whereas I feel like if you, well, I mean, I wonder if Keith Richards really remembers what half of what Keith Richards has done. Well, he did an interview 40 years later about Nevworth, and he didn't deny any of the accusatory questions that the interviewer put to him. He didn't confirm anything either, but he certainly didn't deny it. So he was he was quite in it. You know his wry smile. It was that. It was that sort of thing. It was amazing, and I was very amused to read this article again. It was sent to me recently because I was doing the book. Somebody said, "Have you read that article on Keith?" No, I hadn't. So that was it. So that's how you spot your memory. <laughs> so then, when it comes down to like managing acts like this, I mean, you know, Herman's Hermits especially became so big that like, how much say do you wind up having? in each band because obviously you say that with 10cc and the nebworth show um i mean you weren't telling them which song to go on with first <laughs> that was certainly up to them so how much say do you often like use and have i think initially with herman and hermits i was very involved in everything to do with the act or the songs that were chosen even on record we got involved very much so function of a manager to help to find the record. By the time 10CC came along, it was totally self-contained. So you were given the product at the end. You didn't have anything to do except to market it and decide which tracks to go out with first. But with Herman the Hermit, it's totally different. And with Mrs. Brown, we knew we were catching in on the American obsession with hearing an English voice. <laughs> I'd go into a drugstore and the girl would say, you from Australia? I said, no, I'm from England. Oh, stick around. We'd love to hear your voice. And that, left <laughs> and then when Mickey Most had done about 10 tracks on the album, they needed an extra track. He says, have you got anything else? And they said, yeah, we've got Mrs. Brown. You've got a lovely daughter. And they didn't want to do it, the boys, really. It was a bit of a joke in the act anyhow. And uh, it was recorded without them knowing in one take. No mixing, just just live and it went out and all the radio stations picked on it in america and mickey most was more or less bribed to put it out <laughs> having a guarantee of a million records to be prepaid on if it didn't sell one and it goes in the charts at 12 billboard and three one for four weeks kept the beatles help off number one for four weeks and outsold the beatles so that in itself is a hell of an achievement and Peter then had five records in the top 20 at one stage. Ridiculous things like that. We were hot as hell. And it was all to do with the look, the image, beautiful songs being selected and funny songs being selected and the era following on from the Beatles waving in, the Rolling Stones and the Kings, the Who, everything came after. You know, it's just, it was an era. You, if, unless you lived through it, you wouldn't understand it because it wasn't just music. It was fashion. It was Carnaby Street. Everybody was wearing crazy clothes. All the yokers re re sort of re rebelled. They didn't have to wait for the senior partner to die. You could get somebody at 22 being in charge of a firm. It was a youth revolution, and there was a revolution against American music that had been absolutely 
not so much American music, maybe American crooners and English artists copying Americans by using American accents, some phony accents. And then the Beatles came along with a lovely Scouse accent, natural, wrote their own music, looked different, and magic. And, that, and they exploded and took over the world. And they deserved to. We worship them. Yeah. I mean, it, it is amazing. And, and I don't even know nearly enough about, about it, but I know that I listen to the music and love it. But yes, now that, now that, especially reading your book, I mean, I'm fascinated to dig into a lot of the other books on the subject as well. Well, that's good to hear that. <laughs> but um, so then when it comes down to, I know you, for you, you were so involved in like choosing the songs. I mean, you, you had your own like songwriting team kind of thing. So how important was picking the songs for them? Mickey Mouse picked all the songs for Herman's Hermits. Mickey Mouse managed to reject quite a few that us gave him. For Your Love, a little one. Bust Up, another little one. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, I can't. And also then Andrew Lord Webber and Tim Rice came to me with a song called um, I Fancy You for Peter, which I didn't like or dislike. I said, I'll play it to Mickey. Mickey listened to it rejected it immediately. That became a number one for Jason Donovan, as any uh, dream will do from Joseph. So, I mean, you know, but the great thing about Mickey Mouse, who was a genius, he did pick songs from all different genres. Started with Goffin King, the first two of Goffin King, then he did Silhouettes by the Rays, a, co a cover version of that. Then he did Dandy, which is a cover of the, the Kinks wrote for them. Um, Hot Chocolate wrote songs for them. Jeff Stevens wrote songs. I mean, everybody was open. In those days, people, songwriters wrote for artists. And um, even David Bowie did Oh You Pretty Things for Peter and played on the Top of the Pops TV because the union insisted that the original members of the band played on the record, on the TV performances. So David Bowie rolled up in a dress. <laughs> and Peter, the clean-cut boy in the front, singing Oh You Pretty Thing. It was crazy. Everything was crazy. And I've got to tell you the Who story, because I, 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 it, without that, it's, uh, that explains what happened. The Who were on a tour with Herman's Hermits' headliner. Of course, they were completely incompatible as far as music was concerned, but as members and human beings they got on like a house on fire <laughs> and after each after each gig we played cards oh, a game called brag and i was playing with peter noon Derek Leckerby, myself and uh, the phone goes at 2 30 in the morning we'd finished the gig we'd had a few drinks we're playing cards this is the manager of the birmingham alabama holiday inn uh, is that mr lisberg <laughs> yeah listen is the he says um we have no toilet in Mr. Moon's room. I said, what? <laughs> I said, what do you mean you have no toilet? Well, put it this way, sir. Pull me, sir. The, the, the uh, toilet's not attached to the wall anymore. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Keith Moon had dropped a whole pile of cherry bombs down this toilet, blown it away from the wall. Now, I'm as manager of the headline act. I'm responsible for everything. I've got to take all this garbage. We've probably banned from Mali the in for a while, but that's what went on on the road. Something as crazy as that. So then, you know, in those kind of cases, like, 
it was your was your role almost like tour manager as well as being like actual manager or at what point did you know it was to- more no there were to there were road managers and tour managers but at 2 30 in the morning you're not going to look after keith moon in his room <laughs> i mean he, <laughs> and most people most of the people are probably sleeping we happen to be playing cards you know it was it wouldn't have been it would have been even worse if i'd have been asleep but uh <laughs> it was just it was just crazy it, it was just he used to go around spraying everybody with stuff like shaving foam. And he was a wonderful show drummer and a very, very talented showman. Um, but he was definitely eccentric, to say the least, to the extreme. <laughs> How important is it, you know, when when you're when you're managing a band to find the people that, you know, have the right chemistry together? Well, that's in the initial phase, you get the band together. You don't really have any control over that. All you can do as a manager is if you're putting replacements in to see what type of boys they are, are they wild, are they from good backgrounds, are the parents nice? Because in in Herman's Hermit's case, all the parents were really relatively decent. All you know, they were, they were all living together, weren't divorced or anything, and it was quite a good family. I mean, I I had, and I was a very, I was a good family man. I, I um, I'm a family man. As I say, I won't marry them, but I'm saying I got all the mothers and fathers to go together to Hawaii for a holiday with all the band, that sort of thing. And I took my mother. We, I just looked after it. It was a family, and we we all got on very well together. Uh, any of the resentments and all the other garbage that took place was to do with. Um, the fact that Peter was the focal point, as you've pointed out early on. And, uh, you know, you can't help it that all the press are swarming around him and not around the bass player or something. Whereas in the Beatles' case, that was slightly different because they were all all geared together. I mean, it was... That, oh, maybe not. Maybe Paul McCartney and Lennon McCartney had more of the uh, fame because of the writing and everything. And then George Harrison chipped in at the end, you know, and start getting going with his stuff. Um, and they seem to have, their personalities are much more developed than, say, Herman's Hermits, where it was all Peter Noon. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it's so interesting, especially when you get to the to the MGM era and, and the movies that were made. I mean, it's it's crazy to think now that you're making movies about bands being bands, but that was some, that was definitely something back then. It was a crazy world. Um, I was with on the lot of MGM for Peter's first day of shooting. There were 500, I'm just guessing, probably more, 500 girls screaming and chasing Peter around, as was um, Richard Chamberlain, who was Dr. Kildare, a huge sex throb in England. The program Dr. Kildare was like Grey's Anatomy, and he was very good-looking and gay, which nobody knew at the time. And I look across the lot, and there's two staggeringly beautiful women walking on their own in white trouser suits, white shoes, white handbags, beautiful hair. And I, I turn around to the guy, this throng of screaming teenagers, and said, who are those two over there? Oh, that's Gina Lollabrigida, and the one next to her is Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> they were walking <laughs> unaccompanied across this lot, and I'm surrounded by, again, it's, it was crazy. That was it. That was my recollection of our film first day in the movie. <laughs> How, you know, like, 
So how long, I mean, obviously Herman's Hermits, they kind of had their had their run. So then after that, how how much did you try to kind of recreate that success? No, I never did that. I, I, I went from there to Graham Gorman because I was interested. I realized the song was the key to everything. I always did think the song, well, the song really was that. I don't know how today. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just relate to the 60s and 70s and 80s, all right. The song was very important. And uh, and I started handling Kevin Lowell, Graham. As, um, I put them all on retainers, minimal retainers, like £5 a week or something each, to keep the wolves at bay. They were all single guys, and they weren't married. They didn't have mortgages, and they didn't have five Ferraris in the garage. So they managed all right on the pittance that were given. And they wrote beautiful songs. And that's how it started. It was always the song that interests me. So that Graham, once we got hit songs with him, they went to various people. I mean, the For Your Love thing, which we wrote, he, um, I said, we've got to get that to the Beatles. And he said, don't be ridiculous. The Beatles don't do covers. And I said, well, they do do covers. They did Chains, they did this, they did that. And he said, no, no, Graham. And Graham was convinced I was mad. But I was convinced I was going to get it to the Beatles because I was convinced it was a number one. And I don't care who did it, it was number one. And Mickey Most had rejected it. And EMI had rejected it in Graham's band, The Mockingbirds. But, you know, I was thought, I don't care what's happened, that's the number one. We went to Hammersmith Odeon, and uh, behind me was Ronnie Beck, our publisher. I gave him a demo of the song. I said, I want you to take that to the Beatles at the interval and get them to do it. It's a great song. And he laughed, you know, because he thinks, and there's no way he's going to manage to do that. But he came back sheepishly after the interview and said, I, I hope you don't mind, but I, I've let the Yardbirds hear that song. They were the opening up. I said, I certainly mind. I don't want the Yardbirds. Who are the Yardbirds? I don't know who the Yardbirds are from Adam. He says, well, would you meet the manager, Georgia? Would you would you just have a chat with him? So anyhow, Georgia convinced me. He was rushing with a very gruff voice. You know, he talks like that. Harvey, Harvey, come and get some meatballs with me. He's a great cook. And um, he talked me into it. He says, let me, well, let me just try it. So we did it. And of course, Eric Clapton left the band in me, left the group immediately because he wanted to do rhythm and blues. He wasn't interested in pop. And then Jeff Beck, I think, went in the band. I mean, it, the whole story is so weird. I mean, uh, Giorgio himself had the Crawdaddy Club. Uh, the Rolling Stones, I think, were the house band at one stage. Then the Yardbirds became the house band. It was all integrated. Everything fell in with everything else. They all went to the same clubs. John and Paul used to trade drinks when, with Peter, who was about 16. He'd have a lemonade. They'd had a vodka tonic and switched it, so he got his drinks. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have to go to Bow Street's Magistrates Court to act in loco parentis uh, for them, for Peter when he went on um, tour in America. They always have to have a guardian with them, although they wouldn't out of the country. Couldn't get a visa. So it was, all I can say is it was, it were happy times. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. What, what is it like when you you say you say I mean for your love you knew it was a number one hit like what is it when you look at a song and how do you know that's a hit? Well, I can give you a few examples. Um, I tried to get a song called "Without You" by Nielsen, and I tried to bid. I heard it 
one second. I'm like, that's it. I'm going to get the publishing on that. Unfortunately, I was defeated by another person that saw the same in the song, John Lennon. He ended up publishing the damn song. So we didn't get that. That was one. Um, what are the others? The things like Mungo Jerry in the summertime, you just hear it and you know it's it's there. Yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, again, these are songs that, that I mean, they, they're they so totally still there. I mean, I can sing virtually every one of them, you know, just, just whether I've heard it in the last 10 years or not, I still totally know the song yeah, in my head. Yeah, Monday, Monday, but, you know, Mamas and Papas, you don't have to be a genius. That was sent for Wayne Fontana. Uh, I was managing Wayne Fontana at the time, and unfortunately we couldn't match the demo. <laughs> which was fab you know the demo was so good it was just whatever we did would never i'm not in love when i heard that in the studio for the first time unmixed i knew that was i mean the only thing i didn't know was because of the length whether that would prevent it getting the airplay that it would have done if it had been three minutes however we overcame that but that was such a stupendous song that you knew and then there are other things that we knew were hits Strangely enough, most of the good things weren't hits in America. I mean, Rubber Bullets wasn't a hit in America. We had a terrible label in America, so we, we, we never got anywhere. Uh, Dreadlock Holiday, it's had moderate success in America, but it's number one everywhere else in the world. You know, so that you knew that was a hit. I mean, I, there's so many of these songs that they were just, you know, you've lost that loving feeling. <laughs> you know, I heard it through the grapevine. You know, you, you hear that, just the, even the riff, you know it's a smash. Oh. Well, I do, so maybe that's just a gift that I've got, but it's a, it's a gift that I'm very lucky to have. That I always seem to see things in the future, kind of, whether it's a trend or whether it's an act or whatever it was, without well, being big-headed, that is. I mean, I just mm -hmm. genuinely, I'm interested in the music, and I seem to know when the winners were winners. Just something, I don't know why. I didn't, I don't think I got it wrong very often. And if I did get it wrong, maybe with things like the Sex Pistols, which I wouldn't have expected to be number one, but it wasn't to do with the song. That's all yeah. I could say. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right for sure. So then when it comes down to breaking the US, do you, do you think it was just simply the fact that, like, that, you know, mismanagement over there was the reason? Bad record companies, yeah, not knowing how to handle it. I mean, 10cc weren't easy to handle. They came up with brilliant albums, but every track had its own identity and was different. The American record DJs, and they wanted the same song backwards and sideways 50 times. They didn't want diversity. Diversity is hard to sell, and that's what I think. So, I mean, that's really part of the problem, I thought. And apart from the fact that London records sucked. I mean, they were awful. I mean, they just were awful. I and mean, when we did the deal with Mercury, they weren't that much better. But the band turned down an opening act tour with the Eagles when I'm Not In Love was moving up the charts. So if you're going to turn that down, you know, The Who went on with Herman's Hermits. The Rolling Stones went on with Herman's Hermits. <laughs> Tom Jones went on with Herman's Hermits. I mean, you know. It's horses for courses. It's how much you want to happen. <laughs> so, then, in your opinion, like what makes a great music manager? Ooh, 
Well, there are many different types of music managers. Um, Colonel Parker was original from a circus background, much maligned today, including the film, which was awful, the Elvis film by Tom Hanks, which was not a good portrayal of the Colonel. Um, the Colonel was a character. Uh, Brian Epstein, it, trying to think what to say, he was a gentleman. We did concerts with the Beatles, and if we agreed a shake hand, was this, we didn't need a contract. And if the band had had a number one in the meantime, they still appeared for the price agreed without any argument. He was a total gentleman, so he had that charm, and he had a flair, and he had a fashion flair, and he... He handled people very well. I think he, he was he was a good manager. Um, I wouldn't say the same about Alan Klein. Um, in fact, I'd say the opposite. But um, trying to think, Andrew Lou Goldham, he was artistic with the Stones. He had a he was part of a team. He was intelligent. I think you need to be more than anything. You've got to be able to take rejection as artists have. You just got to be determined to push your product as best you can and to believe in it, and just to keep going. It's it's a soul-destroying business, really. And so many things can go wrong. You've, you've, got to have, you've got to have good people with you. You've got to have a good publicity agent. You've got to have a good accountant. You've got to have good solicitors. You've got, everything's got to be, you should really just pick the best. I mean, even when that went to snooker, when I got hold of Jimmy White, I took him for, I got him beautiful he dressed, got him a suit in France, got him photographed by Lord Litchfield. You know, you go to the best and you get the best product out. You get the best chance. Uh, that's that's what I found. They just try and use the best of everything. Our publicity agent, Leslie Perrin, happened to be the publicity agent for Rolling Stones, had been the publicity agent for Frank Sinatra. So had a reasonable roster. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. yes, you have, to, you have to pay more. But I think it's always worth it. I mean, because if you've got a shot, you might as well give it your best shot. Mm -hmm. And money should not be should not come in the way of that. Whereas it does quite often. Yeah. So then, I mean, we'll let you go really soon. I mean, I've I've loved this conversation so much. But uh, like, when when it comes down to the music, I mean, you talk about like in the in this British invasion of the sixties, seventies, ten CC hermits, hermits, and so on and so forth. Like, what's the thing that you most want? that era to be remembered for bringing pleasure to so many people uh it was it, it was and also bringing the british music over to america when it hadn't been heard whoever was the hit in england pre-62 never got arrested in america never got anywhere in the charts so nobody in america so from that point of view and canada of course as well from that point of view at least we've exported fantastic music which brings pleasure to people and all you can want as a manager or as an artist yes you all want to make a fortune we all know that but to bring pleasure to people and make their lives better because music's the most one of the most important thing music and humor without music and humor i don't know what life would be like quite frankly mm -hmm. no you're absolutely right and and i mean that's the thing it, it is some of the best music that there is and and 
definitely these are some of the best stories that I've heard in a long time. And one thing I want to point out is how good your website is. Like your website's fantastic for for kind of telling a lot of the stories, but also to to like kind of pointing to YouTube videos and stuff like that of different uh, different versions. I just I really like the way it's built out. It's totally due to my son Philip, who's a bit of an unsung genius. He devised it all and got it going. And uh, he's built it and built it and built it. I can take no credit for that. But he did a great job. And that also helps with the book, because then people that go on to the book can then move on to that. Mm -hmm. He's really good at it. And he's good at researching. And he, he found things that were just astonishing. I mean, the Bruce Springsteen story, that in itself was amazing. That the Bruce Springsteen decided to become a full-time musician uh, and full-time when he went to a Who concert when the Who were with um, Herman's Hermits on that tour I talked about where Keith Moon removed the toilet. I mean, so <laughs> indirectly, we're partly, very partly responsible for Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> if you see what I mean, which oh. is a very obscure fact that nobody would ever dream of. <laughs> But that's but that's the best kind of fact, especially in in this kind of case. And and music is chock full of that, which I absolutely love. I mean, there's so many so many stories, and and it is wonderful. Well, yeah, it's it's it was a long but happy ride. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We're, we've not discussed any of the down things, but why bother? <laughs> that's right. They that's happen right. with everything, every single group. There's always problems. There's always splits. There's this, that, and the other. And I think too much time is dwelt on that rather than actually the music and the construction of the music and the future of the music industry, which is in the toilet at the moment, but hopefully we'll recover. <laughs> that, that would be very nice for sure. Well, Harvey, uh, I've had such a great time talking to you and, and I urge everybody to go out and find your book, I'm Into Something Good. It is a wonderful read, but uh, please uh, tell everybody where they can find the book. Yeah, they can get the book at most bookstores, obviously. Um, Amazon, obviously, you know, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones. I think, you know, most bookstores will have it and certainly can be ordered through there. Um, that's all I know. Uh, Canada, there's a main distributor. Is it Huddleston's? Hudson. I, I don't know. You've got one company that is controls the book industry in Canada. <laughs> I don't remember the name, but I'm sure you can get it through them. Undoubtedly. Well, awesome. Harvey Lisberg, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, we appreciated it immensely. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to have you on again to, uh, to do that some That will be more lovely. Stories. And uh, very nice talking to you. Absolutely. And you too. Wish you nothing but the best in the future. And, uh, and we will talk again soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Woke up this morning feeling fine. There's something special on my mind. Last night I met a new girl in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Something tells me I'm into something good. Something tells me I'm into something good. She's the kind of girl who 
see her and she told me I could 